0: It's happening again. Welcome to Work Cookie, a Seabot podcast. As we broadcast around the world, get bite-sized morsels and tidbits from our industrial organizational psychologists, other experts, and the latest research on the workplace to boost your organization's effectiveness. Sign up now at seboc.com. That's s-e-b-o-c.com to engage with our community, gain a sense of belonging, access our other media, and get rapid advice from our experts. Don't forget to check out our corporate, career Host, recruiter and even student memberships at seabok.com.
1: Hello, this is Dr. Jeremy Lookaball, workplace communication and negotiation coach, as well as industrial organizational psychology consultant. In addition to seabok.com that you just heard, you can also visit my website at termboot.com. Also on the panel today, we have Trip Braden of Strategic Performance Partners. Trips an executive coach, leadership team advisor, and the 2021, one of the top 30 global diversity and inclusion influencers. Today, we're talking about using psych contracts in the workplace. Quite an interesting conversation. It's one of those things, you know, if you need new tires for your car and you start shopping around for tires, all of a sudden you start noticing tires on cars. So we started, this conversation came up people started talking about two uh, on our deep dive event here two, three weeks ago about site contracts. And of course, now I, I see it. I am seeing it everywhere. I'm seeing it on LinkedIn. seems to be such a, a hot topic there. Um, what I'm going to do, I have a, a one sheet. It's a, and it's an 11 or 12 point um, site contract that anyone can use between it's I've, I've used it in corporate many times and many people in, in different departments in corporate have used this. Um, I, I, created a uh, number of years ago and I've refined it ever since. It's not, it's not, uh, it's nothing fancy. It's bulleted questions that people can ask when beginning either a consulting relationship or beginning relationship with a new manager, or I mean, really anything, um, teammate to teammate, uh, supervisor of 10 years to employee of 10 years. Um, these, these really good questions, and once I figure out exactly where I'm going to put that, I'll share how everyone can can get a hold of that. So, Trip, I'm going to throw it over to you in just a second. And again, so I'll just do a quick. Um, everyone, please raise your hand if you want to come up. I might go ahead and just uh, invite some people up as well. You can use your reactions with that little megaphone down below. And what else, what else? Be sure to follow people, of course. And you can also endorse that. One of the neat things about Deep Dive is that you can endorse others for different skills. If you've worked with them on the project, had conversations with them, etc. cetera. The, I think what we're, I, I, I'm going to predict here that we're going to find uh, many uh, different viewpoints on what a psychological contract actually is. And I think we're going to see a lot of different applications from what everyone is sharing. I'm going to reverse and then I'll go to Trip. So I'm going to do a quick intro for the room. So uh, I'm Dr. Jeremy Lookaball. I'm an industrial organizational psychology consultant, as many of you know, and an employee communication negotiation coach. Um, I will let Tripp introduce himself as he comes on. Tom Bradshaw is doing a debrief. He's our IO voice and speech coach he is uh, doing a debrief from our last meeting and sarah smith barry i believe will be on shortly if she's able to get out of her meeting on time this i would like to give a uh a word so we have a sponsor for this event which is virtual conference mastery um, which many of you know that uh, me trip tom and Sharon mclean are part of and the if anyone's interested in, in looking at the new profit model of the remote workforce, follow the it's the virtual conference sorry, virtual communication mastery page on LinkedIn and also VCmastery.com. There's um, a lot a lot of good things coming out with that. We're focusing on how do we take and provide clarity for the, for the remote workforce and help organizations be uh, even stronger than before with that. So, Trip, I'm going to bring it over to you to begin our conversation on psychological contracts. What does it? What does a psych contract mean to you? Do you use them with clients? Do you use them initially with clients, and how else, Trip, might
2: you use them, or do you not use them at all? Over to you, Trip. Well, well, thanks, Jeremy, and thanks for having me today again. Um, I would like to do something before we start the meeting, and it, it sounds kind of crazy, but I'd love to hear very quickly from everyone. How many of you in the audience right now are using psychological contracts? Because, like I said, I don't do this all the time, so uh, i just like to get a better feel. Uh, please clap or do something so I can see how many people in the room are currently using these uh, so we can see a little bit better of where the audience is so we can kind of gear towards what you guys want. So how many of you are currently using these kinds of contracts and what you do, either in your independent consulting or in your, in your work? Okay. So it looks like not a lot of people are doing it, so it should be a great discussion. The other thing I would say to you is because I've had a lot of my clients for you know over 30 years in some cases, uh, one of the things is that I sometimes get a little lackadaisical with those kinds of things that I think really could probably help shore up the relationship, especially when starting with new people. When I look at a psychological contract, uh, I, I I typically start my engagement with something like that. I, I'm very actively involved in a very in-depth discussion around many times things that they're comfortable talking about. Uh, so as, as an executive coach and advisor and an organizational psychologist, that's part of what I will do. So the first thing I will try to do is set up the process so that I can kind of standardize it uh, for two reasons. And it, it, it applies both for myself, but it would apply for anybody in the room. And, and that's because I'm very process driven, right? So the whole idea behind this is if I have to step off of a project for a particular reason for a client, uh, someone will have to fill in for me. And the only way they can do that effectively is they they have a clear understanding of what we agree to to start with. So when you think about psychological contracts and engaging in those questions and asking some good questions, uh, I think it's a really good foundational element to what you do. Uh, but like I said, the other part of this is many of my relationships last 30 years have been lasting 30 years Um, So I've been through several executives, for example, and some of the larger clients like an IBM, for example. And and part of this is I want to standardize some of these things. I want to give them some comfort in the fact that they know that this is a a quality process that we're going through together. And they also know that we're going to feed them uh, and share with them something that we know as an expert. Now, I I was thinking about this after last week's meeting. I tend to lead in my relationships with my clients. Um, None of my relationships are All of them are peer-to-peer. And many times it will be a flipping back and forth from being peer-to-peer to to -to mentor-to-peer and going both ways. So you have to think about, you know, long description, but you have to think about where you're going with this person you're talking to and where they want to go. And part of that is critically important. One of the things Jeremy and I talk a lot about when we get together on other platforms as well is this idea of building stronger relationship with our people we work with. And I think that one of the ways of doing that is providing, uh, especially in an uncertain time like today, certainty. So psychological contracts do that. But Jeremy, why don't you talk a little bit about what you do with it? Because you have a more classic training than I do. So how do you go about doing that kind of thing uh, to help set things up? And what does it do for you if you do it correctly?
1: Yeah. In general. So I built mine. There is a, uh, there's a really good book for, uh, it's called the handbook of organizational consulting. It's by Robert Golombuski, G-O-L-E-M-B-I-E-W-S-K-I. Um, I have the second edition. I don't even know if there's a third, it's a, it's like, it's an eight or 900 page book. Um, and when I got, it was, it's, I don't know how expensive it is. When I got it, I got it in, it was 2009. And I went to buy it and it was over $300. But for some reason, I found it for $9 and I bought it right away. But I think it's a pretty expensive book. But it's a, uh, there's, uh, Golubuski an editor and it's just chock full of information for all things, organizational consulting. And there's a huge section there on psychological contracts. And ever since I read it, I've been using it in the field, particularly in in, in two um, uh, two two different ways. One, whenever I'm working with a client, so especially with CEOs, and this is many of you have heard me say, you know, what if I talk to your employees and I come back and the problem is you? Do you want me to be honest with you? They say, yes. And I say, do you want me to be brutally honest with you? And then they look at me sideways. They hesitate. And on second number eight, they say, yes, and they shake their head. So that's part of it. But it's uh, what I've done is I in this this handout that I'm going to give everyone is break it down into very manageable um, conversation piece and steps. And it takes about I'll share this sheet. It uh, it takes about 45 minutes to do it. If you go through it quickly with someone, it takes about an hour to do it. If you're um, going a little slower, I've had people use this, like I mentioned before where entire teams have done it. Um, everyone on a Seabock team uh, has done it. And we just simply did a, a Google sheet and we tracked and we crossed did it. We made sure that we, we did it with everyone on the, on the CBAC team. And it's very helpful and very effective because what you start to understand is you start to get, I don't like the word for some reason, I don't like the word expectations because I think in the, in the workplace it's used differently. My expectation of you is I don't like that, but it, we're able to in in a in a broader sense line out hey what can i expect from you what can you expect from me and what are the potential awkwardnesses between us what are some potential synergies between us well let's you know each person share one potential thing about the other person that could potentially get in the way so it's such a great tool because it's a it's a road in to really critical tough conversations, especially with your boss. Um, and especially with a potential trouble employee to, to put it in those terms, it's, we struggle with, you know, how many times have you been in the, in the workplace or work with someone? And there's just this film of tension around film of tension, but this, this kind of thing with the site contract, it can be done in the very beginning of the relationship. It can be done in the middle of the relationship. You don't do it at the end. Well, actually you can do it at the end because the last question is you decide whether or not to work together. So yes, you can, it can end up being the, the end of a relationship. will um, all. So those are the two main, main reasons, you know, working with, with, you know, when I'm using and first get a client, uh, whoever I'm working with, especially if, especially if it's one-on-one coaching, then the other is uh, instructing training uh, coaching managers on how to roll this out for their teams uh and and it's such a great thing to do i'm i'm going to turn it over to trip in about 60 seconds there is if you, you there's a form open and this is where i'm going to post it um uh, there's a form open called on seabock.com. just go ahead it doesn't cost anything you just put your um you just create a login and it's called using psychological contracts feel free i'm going to have that open trip's going to have that open and you can if you don't want to come up to the stage you can always type in there kind of kind of think of it as a uh, as a clubhouse back channel where you can we can just have informal conversation on a formal topic uh in that particular forum while we're doing this and also that can live on uh forever forever as well and what i'll do you can post files and whatnot so i'm going to put this up uh, while trips going um, as, a, as a file uh, that that you guys can feel free to use. I just ask that you please don't distribute it worldwide. And over to you, Trip.
2: Yeah, thank you. And I, I won't be able to get access to the form because I'm at a remote location today. So just in case you see no comments from me, it's because I'm working off a of phone today versus my iPad and a, another computer. But a couple of things I'd like to do, if we could... I think it might be helpful, is I'd like to ask people how they feel, because one of the things is during that contracting stage of the engagement. uh, It's really critical, and I think a lot of people who are starting out miss the opportunity to really start to build rapport. So part of this is to understand that you're going to try to and ultimately gain rapport by building trust early on in that relationship. Now, I'm going to tell you another situation that you'll oftentimes find yourself in, and this is where that contract becomes even more important at times, is when the third-party contractor is doing it for you. For example, when I work with certain level of high-potential executives in a client, typically I will obviously have the working relationship with that executive, but I also will have the relationship with the HR department. And and, and part of what I do, that I call them, you know, because I have to have my own names for everything, uh, my strategic ground rules been interacting. So I literally will sit down with the person who's the, doing the contract, who is the coachee, And I will also sit down with the person who's paying for the contract, Uh, typically someone in HR, a senior executive from HR, or their person's direct manager um, who may be the CEO, but that's their, their direct boss. And I will make sure that everybody in that room, when we set it up, understands what we will do and what we won't do. And I think that takes a lot of the stress out of the relationship because it clarifies for both the person who's paying, who many times is a less sophisticated buyer, um, then maybe they should be about what they do, but that's their job. And they see their job as being the, the, the guardian of the money. And then the, 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 person you're working with, the actual client, um, and worried about what might, what, what if he says something to me that is, that I shouldn't be sharing back to him, his boss, uh, and, and, and making sure that that's very clear with them, uh, what expectations are, uh, between everybody who does this. Because I think, uh, especially when you start to work in um, uh, large corporations in particular, let's say Fortune 2000 companies, this becomes very much a structure and, and, and a p- policy. HR has a policy on how you are got to do this. And, and unless you're willing to have that conversation, uh, you should you should consider that. The second piece of this is I, I ultimately think is that uh, there's another element of this. And I, I always believe going in soft's a lot better way. Of working with my clients even if they have a, a serious problem that's going on i don't think you get a lot by pointing fingers at each other and telling them that, that they've got a problem so i tend to be a little bit softer on the edges around some of those kinds of things because i've been in their jobs or the positions and i try to bring some credibility there but i also standardize. so if depending on the methodology and process i'm using for an engagement i have two or three different coaching models i use with different clients who paid to have me certified in these processes for them. So, for example, I'm certified in Gallup Strength Finder. Uh, and many of my clients, my largest client for many years was United Airlines. Uh, they were a huge Gallup user, and they, they actually had me certified. Uh, so there was a process I had to go through. But I'm going to ask you guys a question, because I think it's really important. I want to put you on the hot spot a little bit today, if you don't mind. Is I want you to think about what it feels like for you when somebody does this to you. Because I think sometimes uh, in, in our search for our knowledge and, and understanding, uh, we become a little bit zealous with our questioning uh, of things. But how do you guys feel? And you, I, if, if, if Jeremy, if you make me a moderator, we can also bring people up as well. But I'd love to hear how you would feel when it's done to you. Because I think sometimes that's a really great place to start is that mindset of what? how do you feel when somebody puts you in that situation because it gives you a little bit better understanding of what they're going through and how they're feeling, especially uh, earlier in my career did a lot of work in derailment where where executives were having some real problems and challenges. And and I always tried to, everyone said, you don't play very hard with people at the beginning. And it was an intention. Um, It was very clear from my point of view, but how do people feel if you'd like to share a little bit of when you've been put in that kind of situation. And I see Linda Ann's on. Uh, So I'd like to hear from Linda Ann as well, but, Start thinking to yourself and be willing to share a little bit about how you feel when they do it to you, when someone has done this to you, how you felt, because I think it's critically important that we capture that information.
1: And Linda, Ann, before you start speaking, just wanted to give a note. So I, I update, I put in the site contract. It's, it's a post. It's a site contract starter. Um, it sh- it'll should. it show up in the forum, um, scboc.com. I think it's the third, the third block and uh, has a picture of a man and woman talking. Um, you might need to just refresh your page in order for it to show up. I don't know if it just loads or if you have to refresh, but it is up there and feel free to write any uh, comments or questions for us. Uh, over to you, Linda Ann. Please.
3: Thanks. <clears throat> I'm in my car today, so I will be looking at the contract um, until a little bit later, but I, I think that the psychological contract. Um, because it, it lays the groundwork and it also helps you identify what um, whether or not the expectations that the contractor and the contractee are, are the same. You know, certain expectations and then that not be delivered. You know, and so I think it helps identify where everybody is on the page. But also, do you need to change the parameters? Do they? Do you need to expand them so that everybody gets where they want to go? You don't want the situation to be a failure because somebody walks away not having their expectations met. And one thing I learned um, a long time ago was there's a big difference between satisfaction and having your expectations met. When you do, um, say, a satisfaction survey, people can put down, yeah, I'm satisfied with the whatever it was, but did it meet your expectations? Maybe not. So I think it's extremely important to have those expectations outlined. And psychological contracts really work in a, in a couple ways. One thing that I did a long time ago is we had clients sign a registration form to use our services. I was working at a hospital. And there was nothing contractual about it except that they signed this registration form. But in their minds, it was a real commitment to send their people to our service. And so I think that psychological contracts are really powerful.
1: Linda Ann, thank you for that. Um, Very powerful. I was looking back at the. Uh, you, you, some of you might, if, you, if you've opened up the document, some of you are wondering why is it called a communication pledge instead of a psychological contract? That is because in organizations, they're very fearful of. Sometimes they're very fearful, fearful of the word psychological, and also contract. I know some organizations have a problem. They're, it's I've faced this before, and it's like we call it something else. So I also came up with the term communication pledge. Because the word contract, they say, even if it's psychological, if anyone writes anything down, it, it gets into some weird kinds of thing. It, it's, to me, it didn't make sense, but I get it. So you can feel free, whatever you're comfortable with, if you're using this kind of thing. I'm always going to call it a psychological contract, but I always offer up uh, for, for organizations I work with that they can just call it a communication pledge. So um, call it what you want. It, it's, it's a psych contract. I want to go to Patricia. So Dr. Patty, you did, uh, I'm so glad, I'm so glad you're up on stage. So you did your um, your study on, you actually did a study on the psychological contracts of uh, Hispanic millennials. Do you wanna talk about that or share any other thoughts and comments, please?
4: Sure, hi, can everybody hear me okay? Can you hear me okay,
1: Perfectly.
4: Jeremy? Okay. So. I get really nervous on these calls. I don't know why. It's just like I could feel my heart pounding out of my chest, but um, so I'm going to do my best here. Yes, I did my um, applied doctoral project for my doctorate in psychology um, using the psychological contract as a model to teach leaders um, how to better understand the Hispanic millennial professional. And so Dr. Russo is one of the main researchers under the psychological contract. So if you even put google her in google scholar denise russo you'll see she has a ton of articles written from different perspectives of the psychological contract and there was one particularly in 2018 that i used where she really outlined what it looks like like she, she really made it operational so that you can use it as a practitioner and that's the article that i used to create my model of what a psychological contract is and how a leader can better understand it so that there are no, there are no breaches, is what they call it. That's when an employee starts feeling a certain way or is just not in their their productive zone, basically. And so the contract is really unwritten. It's just beliefs, and um, Linda Ann said it, there are beliefs, expectations that we all come into an organization with. Um, there are things that ha- have happened in our past experience during working, good or bad, that we that are part of our contract, and we come in with it if leaders are not understanding that these beliefs, these schemas, these expectations are already within the mindset of an employee, um, they're gonna get themselves in trouble by simple things as, especially with minority employees, of saying a certain statement and it being perceived as unfair by the minority statement, that automatically can put that employee psychological contract into disruption or into breach is what the, the words that they use in research. So. A leader that can understand what it looks like, um, how they impact it, that's a big part, is that leaders and managers, whoever it all can be impacted, um, and how to keep an employee at the maintenance phase, which is what the research calls it. That's the phase where the employee is working, they're happy, they're productive, they're just rolling, and they're really producing outcome. But as soon as any sort of disruption or or breach happens, that employee can go out of whack, basically. And so the leader has to know how to rapidly identify when that's happening, rapidly address it. And that's done by a lot of different ways that Tripp was talking about, um, just how to get to that employee right away, so that that employee eventually doesn't get to the point where they want to quit. And so if you understand how the psychology of the employee is working, and where is that and know how to pinpoint those opportunities when that contract is going down to the disturbance or breach phase, um, you will not lose people. And that's what my research ultimately said, that if leaders understood the Hispanic millennial, their culture, the way that they, their beliefs are, um, they will better be able to recruit and retain this type of population within the organization. So there's a lot of great stuff. I'm welcome to share my dis- my dissertation with everybody, Jeremy, and um, and always welcome to talk more in detail about it.
1: Dr. Patty, yeah, please if you can uh, and if you're willing, you can go to the forums, you can just create a separate post and then upload just if you, I don't if you just have the file, um, I would personally like a signed copy of, of the book because I know you have a couple of those <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, uh, yeah, you, you can upload that in the form and and make that available for people to to take a look at. And you mentioned uh, you mentioned earlier like when working with these side contracts, understanding what they' at their what their productivity level is. And I, I think you're also what you're getting at is looking at what their productivity style is. And you and I have talked. You're doing a similar a seminar for IOs and up and coming IOs on uh, how to become a research translator. And you know, like our conversation last week um, here in both the the CBOC live event, um, how to be a hero with translating research for organizations. And you've also, um, we've chatted briefly about using the Colby, which is a a different kind of assessment, looking at this cognitive aspect um, Mm -hmm. of productivity styles and instinctual styles. So uh, uh, kudos. Thank you for that. Yeah, if you could put that up, that would be be excellent. Um, Let's go to Ariana, please.
5: Hi, everyone. This is a super interesting conversation. Especially um, around the area of how we define the psychological contract. So, I I did a lot of my studies in industrial organizational psychology, and we based a lot of what we learned off the textbook Applied Psychology and Human Resource Management by Cassio Guinness. So, I don't know if you guys use that one, but basically, in the origination of our studies, we learned the psychological contract contract is the unwritten rules of an organization. So. To see that you have this very clear communications pledge is super interested, interesting to me, because I do think there's a balance between creating those front end agreements, but also just looking at the zeitgeist of the times and understanding how people psychologically are engaging in the workplace. And the idea that a lot of our modern day beliefs stem from the industrial revolution, where we worked eight hour days and gave ourselves to an organization for a lifetime. And then kind of talking to what Patricia is saying of how it's changed nowadays and my work is in organizational culture so how do we build trust in organizational justice so people feel emotionally fulfilled in the workplace and stay on the basis of that rather than what it used to be which was just lifetime employment in exchange for a paycheck um and along with that and that'll be done is we've actually found at my organization that a code of conduct is ideally culture written down and helps kind of create a bridge between the psychological contract and what's unspoken, but also the written rules. So we'd be interested if you guys have any commentary on that as well.
1: Ariana, thanks. I'm gonna turn it over to Linda Ann to, in a second to add commentary to that. And also uh, you had your hand up, so I'll let you speak on that. And you mentioned in there, you know, how do you get employees to really be, and I think what you're getting at is that emotional attachment to the organization. And instead of here, I'll give you my lifetime of work uh, and, and, and uh, for reciprocity, I'm gonna get a paycheck in return. So we're looking at these different kinds of commitment. Uh, we have, there's another, I, I wanna uh, mention that for the next four weeks, right after this at one o'clock, we have a separate series. Some of you have seen my post On really it's employee communication and negotiation in the workforce and we have a variety of topics one of the upcoming topics is going to be how do you get your managers to to drive uh, employee emotional commitment to not only the organizations but also to their particular department so we're doing a little spin-off of what we're doing here geared more uh, towards very specific application in the workplace and those are at 1 p.m. Eastern time. We've got, um, you know, 16, 17, 18 topics lined up to take us into, I think the beginning of March, but if anyone has any topics that they would like for either these particular rooms that we're doing now for our IO base and how to become a world-class IO expert IO consultant, please let us know. Uh, you can email me directly. You can send uh, an email to, uh, hello at com. You can, um, uh, direct message me or tri- or um, Sarah or Tom on LinkedIn or if you have topic suggestions for the employee communication piece but what we'll do is we'll close uh, these rooms at, at right at one and then we'll pop right in to the other one so yeah um, I think that's a really important topic that uh, Ariana, you bring up how do we get employees to how do we change it from lifetime of work just for a paycheck Linda Ann over to you
3: Thanks. I, um, and forgive me if I got this wrong, I think it was Patricia who commented about, you know, having uh, managers pay attention to whether or not there's a breach and a disengagement from an employee based on the psychological contract. And what I'd really like to hear is some uh, comments about how these psychological contracts with individuals or between managers and employees um, really contributes to the overall psychological Safety within an organization and how that contributes to the culture of psychological safety. Because I think overall, it's one thing to have that um, understanding between two people, but to create that within throughout the organization, I think is really critical in moving organizations forward these days. And psychological safety, in my opinion, is something that we need to work on a lot. So I would love to hear what other people have to say about how these individual contracts really contribute to the overall psychological safety of an organization.
1: Ooh, how psychological contracts contribute to the overall psychological safety of an organization. I absolutely, absolutely love that. Um, You asking that question, a quick little shout out to Jake. uh, He's in the audience here go Jake does a Jake you've got a lot of great introspection and you have it seems like these powerful aha moments and then you do a lot of LinkedIn posts with with surveys for that and you ask very very pertinent questions so I want to encourage everyone give Jake a follow here on Deep Dive and also connect with him on LinkedIn and also go to his post go to his activities and do his post and contribute to those there's usually a ton of interaction there and um, Jake maybe there's something that you want to take out of this and and uh, any aha moments you take out and, and and post it there. But just a shout out to Jake for the great work that you're doing in terms of building, continuing to build community belonging for for everyone. Uh, I believe, uh, let's go, I think it was Noel and then Shamik. So let's go Noel and then Shamik and then we'll do a quick reset. So go over to Noel, please.
6: Yes, thank you. Um, so- uh, my background is in uh, undergraduate law as well, and we, we covered psychological contracts as almost as implied terms, uh, connected uh, as well to other aspects of you know by operation of law. For example, uh, the right to health, the right to to access uh, the websites or learning management system, whatever uh, digital platforms of the company, uh, because of uh, disability legislation as well. These are all implied sometimes uh, within operation of law. So sometimes psychological contracts give life to to that. Sometimes they're pointed out during interviews as well. Um, I I remember one where I was asked to, you know, into the workhouse, you know, just beyond the contract. And um, so I'm I'm trying to find ways of connecting psychological contracts with uh, legal consequences as well, because back to the earlier point where you're trying to avoid the legalese, you know, involved in usual contracts. You talk of, uh, you know, Latin terms like animal contract and the meaning of the mind, meeting of the minds. It means uh, where there's legal consequences. But for psychological contracts, it, it seems like people tend to use, view them as optional contracts because they become uh, as an aside or they're not really named as contracts. So, my my. My question then is: Is there an intention, you know, from from IOs and uh, and HRs to 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 embed this into the law of contract, or is it something that is uh, engaged from the margins of, of legal consequences? Um, that's my main interest. i, I we seeing the contracts going further, you know, to talk about diversity, inclusion, and belonging. Uh, I deal with, the you know, web accessibility, so I'm trying to also draft guidelines for, for people I'll be working with, you now, Nelson university and how they should be able to, to, to observe the digital wellness by sharing accessible content and, and the likes. And these are implicit, you know, sometimes they come after the contract that they sign with the company. So there are many other ways that – so that is my, my main question. Are we dealing with something that will have legal consequences in the future or are we dealing with something that is more of a moral or an optional um, setting?
1: Yeah, that's I mean, quick. No, that's a that's a great question. If you could, so we don't lose that great question. If you could, I would love for you to, if you go in the the CBOC the forum and post that question. I think it's very pertinent, and that way we don't lose it. And I think as far as the um, as as far as when we're talking about specifically with site contracts, it's more or less kind of a, a an understanding, right? It's it's more of a it's it's nothing. It's it's never anything that would uh, be legally enforced or not legally enforced, but, you know, enforced in the workplace. The beauty of it is it's, it's, it's an understanding. It's a relationship between two people. And it brings me back to what, Ooh, who said it? I think, uh, Dr. Patty, I think you said something to the effect of it's important. Yes, it was. you. It was um, uh, identify early on when there's an issue, a communication issue, a, a breach in the site contract for the manager so they can bring it to the employee's Attention! The beauty of a properly written, if you uh, communication pledge is that uh, it, the it, it, you work through how you know how will a broken communicate or I should call it site contract. How will a broken site contract be determined? And often the answer to that that I found is people say, "Well, you'll know it because you'll feel it. It'll be a feeling of being slighted. It'll it'll be a feeling of frustration." Um, how will a broken a communi- uh, broken site contract be addressed? how will a broken site contract be enforced and enforced very, very, very loose term. Uh, but very great insight and pertinent question, Well, Shamik, over to you to either respond to Noel or uh, different insights or questions. Go ahead. Oh,
7: um, well, I'm gonna pre- present a kind of different insight. I think the communication play is just awesome. So um, I'm on my phone right now, so I'm not able to look at the document, but I will definitely, um, check that out. Um, but I wanted to have a different standpoint. Um, most of my research is done with, um, nonprofit organizations. And I think sometimes that when we talk about the psychological contract that we're kind of looking at the employer or the employee, um, but that can also be looked at towards the, um, involuntarism. Um, oftentimes many or many times, um, volunteers feel slighted as well or uh, or a different word for that their psychological contract has been broken uh, so when we're in our volunteer if we're volunteering as a manager or we're volunteering just have volunteers walking around there that we need to keep that in in um in our forefront that we can still break those contracts and it can be something simple you know that the fact that you are having a guest speaker come in and you didn't give that and you didn't allow the volunteer to meet the guest speaker is something just that small so being mindful of what psychological contract is that it is about relationship and and it's applicable in both um for-profit and nonprofit profit organizations that was all i had to contribute thank you
1: and uh, that was a very good. As soon as you said that, it got, it got me thinking, uh, that's a very powerful, I, you know, when you look at what the, when you look at the nature of site contracts that, I mean, even more powerful, I mean, it should be first thing, first thing, first, if for any volunteers, so powerful, Shamik. Thank you. Vin, thank you for sharing that. It's, it's such a valid uh, point. And when you look at overall what a site contract is, it might even be good when you're trying to explain a uh, when you're trying to explain the concept of a, of a site contract. Go, you know, think about what Shamik said in terms of it's a very good tool. Start out with talking about volunteer organizations because you start to understand that it's not a written in stone. It's an organic thing between two people, between uh, or even between a, a a group of people, a team, uh, and, a, and a leader of that team. It's very important because it's not. This strict thing to be enforced. It's really a relationship thing. And speaking of relationships, use the site contract in your personal relationships. Use them at home with your kids, with your spouses, whatever it may be. That it's it's very powerful. And just sitting down for forty five minutes. I mean, they're they're powerful questions. You know, what are your priorities? What's your interpersonal interaction style? Uh, you know, when you first, I would love, I would love to hear back. You know, anyone in the dating scene if you were to walk through, you know, on date number three with, with your interested other do walk through this psychological template, I would be completely tickled to see how that goes. I doubt anyone's crazy enough to try it. Uh, But if you are, please, please let us know. I think that would be uh, amazing. Um, Could we, so just a quick reminder, if your hand is up and you want and you don't want it up, up, up on stage, uh, go ahead and put it down. Sometimes we leave our hands up. I'm losing track. So, what I'm going to do right now is I'm going to go. I think it was uh, Dr. Patty. I think you were next. And then, Dr. Patty, I want you to just throw it over to somebody else because um, I haven't been staring at my phone and I forget the order. So, I'll turn it over to Dr. Patty for your question, comment, and then you throw it to Trip, Ariana, or Linda Ann, please.
4: Okay, I see Trip's hand. So, I'll throw it to him. Um, to answer Linda Ann's question, and also to piggyback on what she said, this is really, the psychological contract is really a mindset. It's really about building perspective from whatever angle you're using it. So if it's relationship building, or if it's how to create um, that psychological safety in organizations or cultural change, from whatever perspective you're using it, it's about building pers- uh, building awareness within yourself. Um, it's also, I think, it's also related to emotional intelligence. You're able to assess individuals around you, what they're feeling, their reactions, their facial expressions, their behaviors, um, because something like that can tell you right away. Okay, this person is going into breach. Like they're going into a, the, their breaches, they're coming up for a disturbance. If you want to use the, the the PC terminology, um, and then I need to react. So it's really a mindset of how you can address any situation. Um, that has to do with relationships, um, and then what to do next. Sometimes we're left with, okay, I just told that person that they're gonna, they can't go to the training. I promised them. Um, what do I do next? Like sometimes we don't know what to do, next, so we don't know what to say to them. And the psychological contract gives you that roadmap, step by step. Okay, what's what? What are the best practices I should do with this employee? Well, they. The the research recommends you need to have velocity, meaning you need to go and speak to them right away. Do not just let them simmer in their office with anger because they're not going to a training. Um, So the contract has best practices of what you can do to um, help that individual go back to their maintenance phase, which is their happy phase. Um, So I think it could be used, Linda Ann, in creating awareness for leaders to better understand the importance of the psychological safety and wh- how they can impact um, the outcomes of that within their organization so happy to continue talking even offline about this trip I'm going to hand it over to you
2: um, thank you you know it's interesting I was listening to Linda Ann and I was thinking interestingly enough and then what Patricia said is it's it, something that we're not talking about that we should be talking about in this room and that's the idea that these contracts are probably not as much as individualized as they used to be Uh, we're doing a lot more as teams and organizations and 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 those kinds of performance units for a lack of a better terminology to talk about but when you start to think about the fact that interacting with your team members who has a contract with you that you you've kind of spent a lot of time investing and developing with them and that relationship and that bond you also have to consider that many of the people who they're going to interact with on a regular basis are not aware of this uh, this, this, kind of a standard we've kind of put around our culture. And, and part of an opportunity for us to expand our influence is I, I do a lot of work on ensemble economies. And when you look at the culture of those things where you have people coming in and out, movable parts, a lot of different people being involved and engaged, it might be well served as part of your partnering programs that you work with and when you manage your programs, because a lot of your team members are virtual, uh, you want to let them know some of these kinds of ground rules you're putting in place so everybody takes can have an advantage of taking advantage of it. There'd be nothing worse for somebody to come in and not know that certain things are off limits. And I, and I think what's funny is we're very good to do it with our direct reports and our direct teams. The further out the circle we go, every level we leave that layer, every layer out we go, we lose a certain percentage of that information. The second piece, I thought, from uh, Dr. Patty, if i don't go by Dr. Patty, um, but I think the other part of that is culturally. And, and when we look at different diverse groups and diversity issues, these are issues that really could be worked out and before you start, <laughs> meaning having these discussions, helping people better understand, helping people be more aware of these things. And, and then can, I would say to you the other thing I, I'm a really big fan of, And all my clients, I I always remind them, constant communications. (laughs) Keep reminding and sharing these things with people so they become part of your culture, part of the fabric of this. But that fabric used to be your organization, and that was it, and maybe a few specialists. Today, you could have – 90% of your team could be outsiders. I have a couple of clients right now have – half their team is outsiders. They've got 24 people working for them, 12 are not from their own organization. How do you manage that? How do you make sure the team dynamics stay positive? These are things, and I'm not saying I have an answer by the way, Um, but I would say to you, this is an opportunity for IO to excel by helping educate people to the impact this can have organizationally on the teams, on outsiders, on partners, on vendors. I just had a meeting with a vendor for one of my big clients, who did a couple of things that I don't think anybody on our team would do, uh, but they were completely innocent when they did it. And I think that's the other part of this is if you want psychological safety in the workforce and the workplace, you have to realize who's in the workforce and the workplace. And I'll add a, a really weird twist on it, given my background, is we're also not, not talking just about people anymore. We're now starting to talk about AI and some of these other things that are coming along that in the next five years, up to 20% of your team will be technology. And how is that going to be trained? Because there is, and we've seen this consistently, prejudice in the more complex algorithms that are built to run applications. So how do we make sure to incorporate this into our culture? And that's all I have to say.
1: Excellent. Linda Ann, I see you have your hand up. Over to you to respond The TRIP or something different.
3: um Well I I don't have a um, all I can say as far as as, as responding to, to trip is I think that that taking into consideration AI and how that interfaces with the humanity of the workplace is one of the greatest challenges we have facing us and we need to start addressing it now so it becomes part of an integrated part of our culture um, The other thing that I wanted to just address was in the way that it sounds to me is some of these psychological contracts sound like it's, um, you know, manager to employee. And I in my mind, it, it needs to be a, a very fluid two-way street where employees feel comfortable um, addressing things with managers when the manager breaches that psychological contract. And that kind of goes to uh, the image in my mind of, someone who says, well, I have an open door policy. Well, that doesn't mean anything if nobody wants to go through the open door. You know, so I think that it's really important that if we're going to have a psychological contract with a team or an individual, that it needs to be a really comfortable, clear um, environment for it to go both ways in a very fluid manner. Um, That's my two cents on the topic.
1: Comfortable, clear environment so that it makes sense for for both. I'm, I'm paraphrasing there. That's that's really important. Um, the key with these is people should not people should be, be during the psychological contract process while you're going through it. It should provide insight and aha moments. Yes, you know, and, and make is you know the last thing uh, is is in any communication is you keep other people from becoming defensive. So it's very important to ask questions um, and make light uh assumptions and but in, in the this the process of the environment yes you know make it a thing you know if you can't, you can't do this thing where you're sitting with a subordinate across your desk you can't be in the principal's office when you're doing this kind of thing you know sit you know put the person at a 45 degree uh, on your on your like if you're sitting at uh, at your at six o'clock you know have the person sitting either at your three or your nine right you don't want someone right across from you. Um, Go ahead, uh, let's go over to uh, Ariana, please.
5: It's interesting to hear how different psychological contracts can happen on more of a micro level from individuals and teams and then how those establish norms for the organizational culture as a whole. Uh, in, In this discussion, I'm realizing that I've used this concept of a psychological contract most frequently with clients and focus groups and just setting agreements is usually what we call it. And I think that the power in kind of being the one to bring it up is also whether or not you're the leader or the consultant who's coming to another party is also let them know what you're going to do for them. So letting them know that you're going to be here to provide respect to listen. Um, Even agreements that we set up such as for the duration of this period, we're going to stay off technology and really honor each other's voices. Um, I think sometimes it can be used to kind of pull and inspire people rather than kind of like contract terms can seem a little harsh sometimes and things that there'll be punishment for not for not doing or if it's breached or things like that. But I also think it can be a really inspirational tool as well.
1: I love that ending an inspirational tool. And that's the, that's the point. Um, I, I mentioned earlier today on another event, if you can leave a meeting or an interaction or a zoom or whatever it is feeling more energy than when you had in the beginning, that is a blessing. That's a blessed thing because how often do we just get drained? And then at the end we just question what we said or we question what the other person said. So if it, you, know, go towards that aspiration trip, you were talking, when in your, in your clubhouse room uh, this week about, Uh, or was it, maybe it was last week here. I can't recall. There's so many events about the aspirational aspect. Yes, it was one of your clubhouse events instead of, instead of looking at, um, you know, what are people's pains and how can we be aspirational to them? And I really love that. And that sticks in my head Um, on that note of clubhouse. I want to Christina down uh, and others in the room, everyone give Christina a follow. I think she's going to be very active on this uh, and this medium she is excellent. She has some excellent thoughts, excellent points all the time. And she initially connected with Trip and I and Tom over in some some clubhouse rooms. So uh, welcome, Christina. Everyone give Christina a follow. Christina, glad to see you here. Um, we what we're going to do, we're going to go to Joseph for perhaps a final thought. Right after this room at one o'clock, um, we're going to move over to how to get employees to solve company challenges while giving them a sense of purpose. If you want to jump over in six minutes, uh, when we close this room to that one with us, you can, I posted the link in the CBOC forum. You can also probably find it if you go into the dive app and simply do a search for the word um, purpose or uh, employees, or you might just see it as the next event popping up. Uh, Joseph
8: over to you. Thank you, Jeremy. Um, I kind of just want to mention after listening to what, you know, uh, Trip said, uh, it actually made me think of a book, um, which I love and I recommend to every single manager uh, I work with. And I'm uh, hoping most of the people on this call have at least heard of the book. It's called The Five Dysfunctions of a Team by uh, Patrick Lencioni. Um, but you know, as we're talking about this, oh, good. <laughs> uh, as we're talking about this, um, I'm, you know, kind of thinking about the the principles in that book and realizing, you know, they did a really beautiful job of kind of putting these underlying principles that we're talking about today in very common language, right? Like absence of trust, absence of conflict, not these big HR, I O terms. And from the managers that I know have read the book, that come back to me after and say, "Wow, that was such an insightful book." Usually, my next question is. But did you see what the end was when new people joined the executive team? The kind of main character of the book kind of looked back at the, you know, the boardroom and said, you are all responsible for reinforcing this culture. It can't just be me holding up the bricks, right, kind of thing. So on one hand, you know, it's our jobs to kind of start that that culture change. On the flip side, we also have to focus on it can't just be one, one person to one person. That's how we start it. But how do we build it to change the culture? Right. Um, but, but uh, the, you know, great book. If you haven't read it, please do. It's, it's, I think it's relatively cheap on Amazon, but uh, thanks for the final thought.
1: Joseph. Yeah, that's very powerful. I remember reading through, and let does a good job of, of, uh, of that book. And I had this really thick binder, like a study binder for it. And I noticed a couple of things in terms of the way things were worded. I went and turned it around And I did my own titles and I did a write up of it and I changed it to instead of the five dysfunctions of a team. uh, Forgive me, I'm out of breath. I just had to run up and down the stairs. I turned it into the five uh, functions of a team, you know, going, I guess, more towards that aspirational nature. Uh, Trip, let's turn it over to you for some final thoughts.
2: You know, I think what we all heard today is there's a lot of different ways of doing this and they're all right, Uh, but we have to do it. And, and part of that is taking the responsibility and ownership on what we do and how we go about doing this, especially when you have a more diverse workforce. I think this is going to become more and more critical as people re-engage in their work and try to really make a big difference in their organizations the way you want them to. You're going to have to figure out ways of reaching out to them. And, and, and the word I just keep coming back in my head is, is personalize it. It's not enough anymore to just kind of give somebody a pat on the back and say, nice job. Uh, you know, in the past, they have worked in the, in the industrial age, that was more than enough for many employees. But today, uh, younger generations in particular are really looking for that support and, and, and a, a, a symbiotic, it uh, was the other word that came up, symbiotic relationship with their manager. And especially, we were just on a call with Jeremy right before this. And I think the thing that came out to me was it's so critical to reinforce positive behaviors and, and to have those interconnections happen you know we're talking about a contract that kind of seems formal but if we do it well uh, we will we will have a much more high performing organization than we would if we just kind of try to get it along so i think this is a really great opportunity and a great foundation for the, the future conversations we're going to have so thank you
1: the key point just you know it has to be get it done be done and you're right we've lots of different perspectives on the site contract the key is turn it into an action item and get it done. Would be would love to learn. If there, you know, think if everyone can, rather than, you know, I'm always I always say, rather, you know, you have people go to training, you know, think about your last training, think about your last seminar that you went to to. Can you write down a page on what you learned? Can you write down a page of what you turned into action? A lot of times it's oh, it's a great seminar, it's a great training. I'm gonna go get some pizza. So how can you turn? So we've had an energizing, fantastic discussion. What can you do within the next 24 hours to put whatever aha moment you have? What's a single bulleted action item that you can either share with someone else to do and help me coach them through it, or that you can do? Maybe it's enacting, maybe it's taking and bringing it to your leadership. The idea of a psychological or communication pledge. Maybe there's a manager that's struggling. Maybe there's a dispute between two two teammates. What can you do um, to roll out either, if you're in a decision-making position, to roll out maybe an entire initiative? The fruit and the synergies that can be gained from simply having a 45-minute conversation and, and working through this verbal psychological contract can be absolutely amazing for everything from productivity, you name it. We are going to close the room in about 15 seconds because I have to jump over to the other one but again we're going to switch right over to a different room how to get employees to solve company challenges while giving them a sense of purpose and that link is in the Seabo forum also here in deep dive. So we'll close the room. Thank you everyone for being here in five, four, three, two, one
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of Work Cookie, a Seabock podcast.